1 Peter 3, 8-12, and I know you're going to find it helpful to read along with me. And there Peter writes, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, when I was a very young Christian, I worked in a restaurant that, in which I was the only Christian, and almost all the other waiters and waitresses were very hostile to me just because they knew I was a Christian, they knew I was pursuing pastoral ministry. I didn't even have to say anything to them to elicit some of that hostility. And I'll never forget that the man who was most host- hostile to me was a man not much older than me who was a waiter at this restaurant. And one of the things that struck me as strange about this man and all his hatred for Christ and for God's people was that he would stand at the front door of the restaurant day after day after day, and he would hold the door for customers as they left the restaurant, and he would say to them, have a blessed day. And I remember as a young Christian, day after day, after day, after day, watching the man who hated me so much and hated the Savior I love so much, holding the door for people and saying to them, have a blessed day. And I remember thinking, you can't just wish blessings on people. You can't just verbalize blessings and so impart blessing to people. And I also realized that this man had no idea what it meant to actually be blessed. And as I thought about that, and I thought about all that the scriptures had to say about true blessing comes from knowing Christ, the covenantal blessings of God, when God reaches down in our rebellion and he has mercy and grace on us and he forgives our transgressions and what what Paul says in Romans 4 about David saying, blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, whose transgressions are covered. Blessed is the man or the woman to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And I remember thinking if this man really wanted people to have a blessed day, he would want them to know about the Christ that he hated so much. But what's interesting is that there is actually in the scriptures, there is actually a way that God tells us that we can impart blessing unto others. And yes, it comes from us ministering the gospel to people. And yes, it comes from us verbalizing to them what God has done for sinners who are undeserving and hell deserving. And yes, it comes from us telling others about the only way of salvation, the only way of blessing. But Simon Peter in this very interesting passage in 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12, essentially says that God has redeemed us and left us in the world so that we would be a blessing unto others and impart a blessing unto others by not returning evil for evil, for not practicing deceit with our mouths, with not returning in bitter words or actions 
everything that we feel others deserve because of the hostility that they show toward us both in the church and without, and that we are essentially agents of God's blessing to the world by the way that we respond with our word and our actions. You, if you're in Jesus, have been redeemed. Peter will actually say to this we've been called. You have been redeemed in order to be a blessing and then ultimately in order to inherit a blessing. Now Peter's going to tell us in these verses two things. First, he's going to tell us that we are to pursue the inner life of blessing. You'll see that in verses 8 and 9 where Peter will first tell us that the, the life of blessing starts within us. We are to cultivate those virtues that God wants to work in his people, those virtues that God has redeemed us to live out in this world, and they have to start within our hearts and minds. It's not behaviorism. And then secondly, we're going to see that we are called to demonstrate that virtuous life as a life of blessing in the world. Well, notice what Peter does here. What he's done in uh, the end of chapter 2 and chapter 3 is he's gone through those different spheres in which Christians are to live the gospel-centered life in this world as sojourners. Christians are to live in light of the gospel, in light of the civil authorities, whether they are good or bad, whether they are harsh or cruel. Under any regime whatsoever, it is possible, remember Peter's big point, is that the gospel works everywhere and that the Christian life can be lived anywhere. And so he moves first from applying that truth in the realm of the state, and then he moves to the work relationship. And he says, whether you have a boss that is kind or you have a boss that is harsh, living in light of the grace that you've received in Jesus means that you can live in every working environment. You can, you can live a godly life and the gospel works and you can live a Christian life under any environment in the workplace. And then Peter tells us that whether our marriages have been blessed by God or not, whether we have a godly spouse or not, whether our spouse is kind and compassionate to us and treats us well, or whether our spouse treats us harshly, we can live the Christian life in the marriage relationship. He has gone from the state to the workplace to the marriage relationship. And now what Peter does in verse 8 is he moves into the realm of our general activities in the church and in the world. Peter actually does exactly what Paul does in the book of Romans. Very systematic in how he covers all the bases of how the gospel is to be changing us, how the gospel is to be shaping us, and that there's no area left uncovered by the work of Jesus and the grace of Jesus in our lives, and that God is committed to turning us into the people he wants us to be everywhere. It's essentially what Peter's saying in chapter 2 and 3. God is committed in Christ to turn you into the kind of person that he wants you to be everywhere. And now Peter tells us, I think, first in, in verse 8, that God wants us to pursue the inner life of blessing others by pursuing it in the church. Notice he says in verse 8, finally... All of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now, Tom Schreiner has made the almost too obvious, and yet it becomes profound because it's so obvious point. He says, presumably, this admonition and others would be unnecessary if churches were not prone to suffer from division and dissension. So, 
Schreiner essentially says, Peter wouldn't have to say what he says in verse 8 if churches were not, by default, prone to dissension and division and, and every kind of activity and action that's unbecoming of the gospel. And so Peter tells us that the first thing that we are to do in living in fellowship with one another is that we're to have unity of mind. I think that the gospel is bound up in that. You know, the, the best fellowship I have with people and the best fellowship that I witness, and, and I'm not talking about Christian fellowship per se, the best community that I witness among people is when people have something in common. They have the similar interests. They, they, they've spent time studying these things. They rejoice in certain things. We have hobbies. We have activities. We like to travel. We get together and talk about all the places we've traveled. And when we do, we have a sort of unity occurring. We have this unity occurring. And I think what Peter's telling is that everything that he has said in chapter 1 that's true of us in Christ, that we have been begotten again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, that we have been given an an, uh, unwavering hope that we have an inheritance waiting us undefiled that does not fade away, kept for us in glory, who ourselves are being kept through faith by the power of God for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time, that the things that we have in Christ should be those things that produce unity in us, that we should long to talk about the things of Christ, that we should be excited about sharing with each other what God's teaching us in the scriptures. The unity of mind he's talking about is a unity that is built on the common love of the truths of Scripture. You know, I know far too many people who know the Scriptures in part, and yet you get the sense that their response to things in the Scripture and their relaying what they know in the Scripture is merely to go around and talk about why everybody else is wrong. I've known too many believers in Reformed and Calvinistic churches, and you never get the sense of a sweetness and a delight in the truth of scriptures. Instead, you get a sense of where everybody else is wrong, and the Bible is used as a weapon. It's used as a weapon to point out all the faults of everybody else who doesn't get what I get. And I think that that's unbecoming to us because when you see when you see the way that the hearts of men and women are gripped in the Bible, and you see the unity that's produced. Early chapters of the book of Acts. You know, the gospel's preached. They're all together in one place. They have all things in common. They are sitting under the apostolic doctrine, the breaking of bread. They're praying together. They're living life together around the Savior. I love the hymn we sang tonight. There is no name so sweet on earth, no name so sweet in heaven, the name before his wondrous birth to Christ the Savior given. And I love the chorus. We love to sing, and the old version said, we love to sing around our king and hail him blessed Jesus. For there's no word ear ever heard so dear, so sweet as Jesus. Peter's already told us about the preciousness of Christ. To you who believe 
He is precious. And so it would be natural then that we would have a unity of mind when we talk to each other. We would want to talk about the grace of God, the mercy of God, the forgiveness that God gives us in Christ. When we're struggling with sin, we would want to say, but I've gone to the Lord and I've confessed this sin and I pray for me that he would heal me by his mercy and his grace. And we would be living in unity in Jesus Christ and in all that we have in the gospel. And then notice what Peter says. He says that we are to cultivate within sympathy and brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. Um, the godliest man I've ever known, I've told you about John Skilton on numerous occasions, that he marked, his life was marked by these things. If there was something about John Skilton, if you ask someone to write down adjectives to describe him, they would say he was full of sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. The most knowledgeable, one of the most knowledgeable men I've ever met in my life. I've told you, I had the whole New Testament memorized in Greek. Every textual variant wrote a doctoral dissertation on the English translations of the Bible from 1880 to 1910, lost it on a bus in Philadelphia, reconstructed it from memory for the University of Penn for a doctorate. And yet that man was the most compassionate and humble and meek and sympathetic man I've ever met in my life. And when I think about John, and I want to be more like John, and I want God to make me more like him, I often wonder what was it that made him so sympathetic and so humble and so kind and so compassionate. And the only thing I can conclude, while people would say to us all the time when I was a boy, John Skilton is the godliest man I've ever met, All I conclude is that John Skilton must have thought he was the greatest sinner he knew. That's the only thing I can conclude. There was nothing hypocritical about his sympathy and his compassion and his kindness and his humility. It was real and it was deep. You know, John Piper actually makes this point that it's possible to read 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12 and to come away thinking in some way this sounds like you better get to work in order to get salvation, that, that you could read that possibly, that, you know, be a blessing to get a blessing, do these things so that you get the blessing, and that it could be misconstrued as sort of meriting these things, that if, I, if I'm sympathetic enough, if I have unity of mind enough, if I'm humble enough, if I do these things, then I'll get the blessing, and, and you could see how someone could pervert that and twist that if they didn't know the rest of the New Testament and they just took these verses out of context, you could see how they could be misunderstood. And I want to read to you what Piper said. Piper essentially said, if, if we view those things, if we view all the things that we're called to, and, and then going on into verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, that you may obtain a blessing. If we view that as us meriting blessing in any way whatsoever, Piper, Piper says, if in our heart, we desire the well we do not desire the well-being of one who reviles us then we will become legalistic and hypocritical and we will proceed to do some good deed just because the apostolic word demands it all the while bearing a grudge in our heart that would be disobedience to this command for one cannot truly bless while inwardly desiring someone's hurt. And so you see why Peter starts with that call to cultivating blessing in the inner life. And he's telling us that we should, we should be realizing our need for the Lord Jesus. And in realizing our need for the Lord Jesus, we will become more united in mind, sympathetic, 
full of brotherly love for others who have been bought by the blood of Jesus, we will be cultivating a tender heart and a humble mind. And then secondly, and I've already sort of moved into this, Peter gives us secondly a call to demonstrate the life of blessing. Notice that he doesn't start with the actions. This is very important. Peter doesn't say, hey, when other people hurt you, just be nice to them. He doesn't say that. He doesn't start with the external manifestation. I think that what Peter does in verse 8 is that he lays the groundwork. The only way you will obey, verses 9 to 12, is if you first experience verse 8 in your life. The only way that verses 9 to 12 will ever occur in our life, the only way that we will be able to bless when we're reviled, the only way that we will be able to keep our lips from evil and our tongues from deceit and turn away from evil and do good and pursue peace, the only way we'll be able to do that in the outward moments in which that, that is being demanded in our lives is if we are cultivating inwardly everything that Peter says in verse 8. But then notice that he goes on and he says, do not repay evil for evil. We've already seen this back in chapter 2. Remember with the Lord Jesus who suffered. He did not threaten, verse 23, 2.23, when he was reviled. He did not revile in return. Now Peter picks back up on that. Do not repay evil for evil. Or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain blessing. Now, I think it's important for us to note that in the day when Peter wrote this, and in every generation for that matter, I was reading John Calvin on this section, and Calvin made the same point that another commentator made about the Greco-Roman world in the day in which Peter wrote this to return evil with good was a sign of weakness. That sort of action was despised. It was a sign of uh, a lack of manliness. It was a sign of weakness and insecurity. It was a sign that you were, you were a socially weak person, that you were not a person who would benefit others, that if you didn't know how to take control of things, if you didn't know how to respond when people hurt you and to get people back, then in some way you were failing and you were less than what you should be. And you know, as I thought about that, I really don't think much has changed. I think in our world there's a constant, there's a constant rejoicing in people that retaliate. There is a, um, there is a um, supposedly conservative uh, internet site that posts a lot of videos on Facebook. Maybe your Facebook feed gets flooded with this because mine does all the time. And on numerous occasions they'll post videos of people that take justice into their own hands. And in this conservative news feed, they'll say, good for her. They'll title the video, good for her. And it'll be somebody taking things into their own hands. It'll be a father retaliating against someone who's done something to his daughter. And they are praising that sort of action. They're saying, this is virtuous. When you take things into your own hands, when you go and attack someone for hurting your daughter, when you don't allow the civil courts to do what their job is, but you, you retaliate and you show people who's in charge, that, that is painted, even in the conservative, social conservative world, that is painted as virtue. And Peter says, no, Peter says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Now, why should I? Why should I return 
evil with good, and cursing with blessing. What motive does God give us for doing that? I think the Bible gives us many motives. God sometimes says it's right. It's the right thing to do. Sometimes God says that it makes us appear like our Father in heaven who's merciful. Be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful, and blessed are the merciful, for they shall be called sons of God. That it shows the character of God, and it, it magnifies what God is like, being merciful to, to rebels like us. When people harm us and do things that we've done to others. I love that verse in Ecclesiastes. Don't take it to heart every time you hear someone curse you or when you hear your servant cursing you. For you yourselves know that many times you have cursed others. It's one of the sweetest verses in the Bible. Don't get so upset when somebody curses you because you know you've cursed others. That's in the Bible. And we know that we don't deserve the mercy of God. And so sometimes God says that the reason we're to return evil with good is that we would treat others the way God has treated us by his mercy and grace. But notice what Peter does here. Peter actually tells us that we are called to bless others, that we may obtain a blessing. Um, John Calvin put this so well. He said, there's no reason why the faithful should complain. Their wrongs will ultimately turn to their own benefit. I love that. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? The faithful shouldn't complain because their wrongs will ultimately turn to their benefit. That's what Peter's saying. Peter's saying, look, be a blessing because you've been called to this and you're going to inherit a blessing and all the wrong that you endure now is just going to serve to make you enjoy when God vindicates you publicly on the last day and he lavishes his everlasting kindness on you for all eternity for like your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, not reviling when you were reviled, not suffering when you were, th- when you were threatened, not persecuting when you were threatened, not, not heaping insult back for insult received. You know, I think, I'm going to say, I'm going to be as transparent as I can with you tonight. When I read 1 Peter 2, 3, 8 through 12, I am unbelievably convicted. When someone does us the least wrong, we are so quick to mount up against them. The least injury, the least, we get mad when we misunderstand what people say to us. We take what somebody says to us in the worst possible light, and then we get angry about it. And then we find out they didn't even mean that. And then we're like, oh, well, that's good. But we were ready to retaliate. We, were, we are ready inwardly. We may coop it up inside, but it's there. We need what Peter says to us. And notice he quotes to bolster everything that he's saying here about demonstrating that we've been redeemed and that this is how God wants us to live in the world and that we're, he- we're going to obtain the blessing. Notice verse 10, he quotes Psalm 34. Whoever desires to love life and see good day- days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Two things to observe here. As we, as we commit to living 
the life of blessing and how we respond in this world that is um, so hostile to Christians. Uh, The psalmist tells us two things. Notice the first part of Psalm 34 that's quoted here is that it should begin with our tongues. I think I've always thought that was interesting that whenever the psalmist talks about um, sin in a believer's life, he almost inevitably goes to the mouth first because I think that's where it's expressed the quickest. We think that we don't hurt people by saying things. You know, maybe you've never been a violent person, you've never physically ever hurt anyone, but James tells us that the tongue is a world of iniquity. See how great a forest, a little fire kindles. And he says, the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. A world of iniquity. And so notice that Peter begins by saying that as we seek to live life in union with Christ, that as we seek to live a a life longing for eternal life and wanting to see good days, we are to keep our tongue from evil and our lips from speaking deceit. We are to be people of truth. You know, I don't think Peter's saying here, I want to emphasize this tonight, I don't believe that Peter's saying that you are to be this sort of um, uh, fake pushover who, in the name of peace and unity, never speaks truth. I don't think Peter's saying that. I think it'd be very easy for Christians to take a portion of scripture like this and say, that's right, we don't ever want to, we just don't want to speak anything that might offend anybody. You better speak things that offend people. I mean, the whole reason the world hates you is because you speak things that offend people. That's the only reason you're hated, because you are truth lovers, because you love a Jesus who saves people from hell. Jesus said that the world hates me because I bear witness of it that its deeds are evil. So Peter's not saying we don't ever, uh, we don't ever talk about judgment. We don't ever talk about anything hard or heavy in the scriptures. He's not saying we don't ever say things that offend people. He says that we are to be a people that keep our tongues from evil and our lips from speaking deceit. And then notice, secondly, he moves to the actions in verse 11. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. There is something, I think, that Peter is telling us in this that the Christian life and the life that God wants for his people with those exceptions of martyrdom and the exceptions of our brothers and sisters who are suffering great persecutions under great oppressive um, enemies and opposition and political powers, there is a general sense, you have to listen carefully, there's a general sense where God wants his people to live lives of peace and tranquility even in this hostile world. There's a sense... And I think Sinclair Ferguson sums this up well. He says that in the world, true Christians are a total surprise to non-Christians. That there should be such a sense of desiring to live a peaceful and gentle and quiet and humble and reserved life. There should be, it should be evident to others that the way we use our tongues and the way that we act toward others that that betrays that we are peace-loving people that want to bless others and help others and care for others and do good to others, even when they hurt us, and maybe especially when they hurt us. 
that our lives are marked by a sense of we want to make the most peace for the most people, and God has left us here to be blessed peacemakers. Now, let me say two things as we close. You may say, this is a lot, and I don't know if I can do that. You may say, I really don't know if I have within me what I need to do, what Peter's saying here. And that's where I'd remind you that in order to get 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12 worked into us, we have to remember everything that Peter said in chapter 1. Notice that Peter says in verse 3 that God, the Father, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. How? How can our lives look like what Peter's telling us they should look like? And Peter would remind us that you've died with Christ. You've been raised with Christ. You've been brought again to newness of life. You've been made a new creature. You're not under the power of sin. Jesus, we'll see this next week, the just died for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, that he might make us, he might raise us up to be creatures that love righteousness. Notice Notice verse 24 of chapter 2, that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You will never, ever, ever be able to accomplish 1 Peter 3, 8-12, if you move away from those foundational truths about what has happened to you in Jesus Christ. Now, if you're not in Christ, if you've not been born again, then you can never ever, ever, ever do and obey what God says in 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12. It is only those who are in Christ, whose iniquity and whose sin has been atoned for, it is only those who have been raised up spiritually with the Lord Jesus who can do this. But if you're in Christ, you've been called to this. Notice again that language in verse 9. And I want us to think about this tonight as we go from here. For to this... You were called. When God decided to save you, when God in time saved you, I should put it that one. When God saved you in time, God called you to be a blessing in this world. He left you here to be a blessing to others. He left you here to be a peace-loving, not retaliating with my tongue or actions person in this world. He left you to be what no one else in this world can be. That's one of the most remarkable things about Christians is that that people should see you and me and they should be able to say Christianity works. People should see us and they should be able to say, I've never met people like them. I've never met people that respond the way they do. I, and, and that gives us a platform to tell others how it is we respond the way we do. Let me say this finally, because you may say, well, so Christians are just supposed to be doormats, and we're supposed to let the world abuse us, and there's no justice, and what about justice? I love justice. Conservative, I love justice. We love justice. We do. We love it. This doesn't seem just. It doesn't seem just to let people hurt me and abuse me and, and, and revile me and persecute me and take my things and do wrong to me. That doesn't seem just. What about that? Notice, I love the end of Psalm 34. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. God's looking at you. He, he's, he's told you how he wants you to live and what the life of blessings life. And then here's the comfort. 
His ears are open to our prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I cannot tell you how many times, and it's probably true of me as well, but how many times I have had people come to me and tell me with bitterness about how someone has mistreated them, the injustices that they've endured, and, and there's, you can tell, an anger and a bitterness there. And I've started saying to people when they come to me, you know that God is going to deal with that, right? Well, but, but, yeah, but. And I, I say, you know the Lord is going to deal with that, right? God is going to repay evil for evil to everyone who's not in Christ. God is going to turn every bitterness into a blessing for you, and the God of all the earth is not going to let anything go unpunished. I often get a kick when I watch um, these souped-up trials, many of them very difficult, and clearly somebody um, who's committed a great crime, at least in the court of public opinion, is guilty. Clearly. Some of these are just so blatantly clear, and they get off. They get a good lawyer, they get off, and everybody's irate. And rightly so. People are upset. The justice has not been rendered. And every time I see that happen... I think they may have escaped the court of human justice, but they will not ever escape the court of God's tribunal. On that day, there's not going to be any witnesses. There's not going to be a jury. There's not going to be evidence weighed and facts considered. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His face is against them that do evil. God knows every single thing that happens. He knows every situation. God is not worried. I love this thought. Just leave with this thought as you think about God wanting you to be a blessing in this world. God knows everything that we suffer, and God is not anxious or worried. He's not concerned how it's going to work out. He's told us already how it's going to work out. For this you were called to be a blessing that you may obtain a blessing. Um, I hope that as we continue this series in Peter... Um, you are challenged that our thoughts are reformed to God's word and that as we go through our weeks and we, we, we are facing difficulties and challenges with people in the workplace, our neighbors, and we're experiencing the minor difficulties that we experience in this life, that God will be working these things in us and that we will more and more appear to the world around us as a people who have been blessed by God who have been left here to be a blessing. You have been left here to be a blessing. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us such a mind, such unity of mind in the gospel and hearts that are full of sympathy and brotherly love and humility. We pray that you would make us a people who do not return evil with evil or reviling with reviling. We pray that you would remind us of our Lord Jesus and all that he suffered and how he was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent so he opened not his mouth. Father, we pray that you would remind us that your ears are open to us and to our prayers and that you are God who delivers and that your face is against the wicked and those who would harm us. We pray, our Father, that you would give us hearts that long to bless others, even those that, that treat us um, 
wickedly and unjustly and who are spiteful and hateful toward us. We pray, our Father, that the watching world would see us and that they would wonder at what kind of people you are making us into in the Lord Jesus. Father, we pray that you'd have mercy on us and that you would build us up in these things. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.